book of Leviticus chapter 1. When you found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand just with me for just a moment in honor and respect for the reading of the Word of God. Follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 1, and I'm going to read down through verse number 4. And again, thank you for being here, and Pastor, thank you for letting me come. The Bible says, And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. I want to preach this morning for a few minutes, God being my helper on this simple thought, leaning on the Lord Jesus Christ. Leaning on the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, all we can do is cry out to you, help us. And Lord, we thank you for everything that has been done, for everything that's been accomplished this week and how we've been so blessed, blessed, Father, to be ministered to with songs such as we've heard and the music we've heard, the preaching simply outstanding, the leadership here, Father, thank you so very much. And Father, we ask you now in these moments together that you would help us to just for a little while to be shut in, as it were, with you and that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts as we open this text of Scripture with your people. Help us, we pray. And Lord, we'll thank you and we'll bless you for what you do. For we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving you the praise, the glory, and the honor for it all. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. The book of Leviticus is the third of the first five books of the Bible we know as the Pentateuch written by the man Moses as he was born along the path of divine inspiration. You young preachers, get it settled early in your ministry, the mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. Now, preacher, why would you say that? If Moses did not write the first five books of the Bible as the liberals claim, we've got problems all the way to the book of Revelation. Settle it early that Moses wrote under inspiration the first five books of the Bible. The third of those five books, the book of Leviticus that we have taken a text from this morning, has as its theme the work of biblical sanctification and the character of biblical holiness, all leading to the end, the worship of the true and the living God of heaven. Now, the name Leviticus it is derived from the Hebrew name Wayikra. It means, and he called. Its Greek counterpart is the name Leviticon, meaning literally of or pertaining to the priests. Now, both the English and the Greek name bear the same prefix, Levi, the name of the priestly tribe in Israel. Leviticus is God's call to his priestly people to a life of holiness and moral purity. We need that today, ladies and gentlemen, more than perhaps evermore. 
ever I'm saying that moral purity and holiness is the badge that the Spirit of God will let us wear as we walk through this wicked world of sin and iniquity. They need to see, the world needs to see some people that are holy. And I don't need to qualify that here, but we're not talking about some false holiness. We're not talking about some self-righteousness. We're not talking about being a Pharisee. But we are to be holy. We are to be pure. And that's what the book of Leviticus is talking about. And Leviticus is the book of sanctification. Forty-two times in this marvelous book, God declares of himself, I am the Lord. Reminding us that God is not only sovereign in our salvation, but God is sovereign in our sanctification. There is a profound transition between the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus. The book of Exodus closes with the tabernacle in the wilderness forming. The book of Leviticus opens with the tabernacle in the wilderness functioning. Look back up in verse number one of this chapter. And notice the Lord called unto Moses and notice where he called to him from. Out of the tabernacle of the congregation. When the book of Leviticus begins, God has already taken his residence, his dwelling place in the midst of his earthly people, Israel. What a profound thought this is. Now, something else noteworthy about the book of Leviticus. The Holy Spirit actually introduces the book of Leviticus on a note of assurance. In the year 1873, the blind poetess and hymn writer Fanny Crosby was listening to a musical composition composed by a friend in hopes of putting words to the melody. As she listened, she suddenly clapped her hands and exclaimed, Why, that says, Blessed Assurance. And she pinned down the words to that immortal hymn that we still sing in many of our churches today. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Thankfully, we sang that song earlier this week here in the Sherathon. Again, the Spirit of God introducing the book of Leviticus on a note of assurance. That simply leads me to say that blessed assurance is the birthright of every genuine blood-washed child of God. The assurance that one is genuinely redeemed is not something God hides or withholds from His covenant people. In fact, this passage that we're examining this morning is one of the clearest biblical illustrations of what it means to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ found in all of the Bible. Now, this passage, all four verses are tremendous. But I am especially fascinated with verse 4. Would you look at it with me again? And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Leaning on the Lord Jesus Christ. Three movements here. Let me lift out quickly in your hearing this morning. First of all, there is the appropriation of the offering. 
Second, there is the acceptance provided by the offering. And third, there is the atonement in the offering. Now let's look at those three movements as they lend themselves to this remarkable subject of leaning on the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice first of all the appropriation of this sacrifice. Look at the opening statement in verse 4. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering. Now, notice, if you will, two remarkable aspects that are directly associated with this offering. There is, first of all, what I want to call the volume aspect of this offering. Who and just how many could offer this offering? Look back up in verse 2 of Leviticus 1. Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, now watch your Bible, if any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. Notice God's reference, if any man. That, beloved, is basically the formula of the New Testament, whosoever will. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not here to debate Calvinism and Arminianism. That's not what I'm here for. I'm simply reading what God says. Something that Dr. Ed Maccabee said, oh my goodness, 30 years ago. I've never forgotten it. He said, if your theology has some man's name attached to it, mister, what you've got is some man's brainstorm and not divine inspiration. Couldn't, I've never heard it put better than that. Now, Calvinism has virtually stifled many of the missionary movements in our day. Arminianism has, on the other hand, created a legalistic system within many of our churches. What we've got to do, and I, I want to be as kind and respectable to, to Cal, John Calvin and Jacob Arminius as I can be, but could I just say it this way? Why can't we just come back to the Bible? What did God do before John Calvin was born? What did God do before Jacob Arminius was born? I'll tell you what he did. He said, if any man. He said, if any man. The volume aspect of this particular offering. Regardless of one's past regardless of one's position, even regardless of one's personality. I'm saying this morning, it matters not who you are, where you're from, or what you've done. You can come to Christ if you want to come to Christ. Oh, preacher, I, I just don't see it that way. Well, God bless you, I see it that way. If you want to get saved, you can get saved this morning. Now, so much could be said there, and I've got to move. It matters only that you come to Jesus Christ. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. That's it, friend. If you want to be saved, you can be saved. There is the volume aspect associated with If any man, anybody. But secondly, there is the volitional aspect associated with this offering. Look at verse number three. 
If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. Notice closely, beloved, God's reference of his own voluntary will. Not one Hebrew man in Israel was forced or coerced to offer this offering. But any man, whosoever, was freely and graciously invited by God to bring this offering spoken of in verse number four. Listen carefully to me, sinner friend. God will not force you to be saved against your will. No one goes to heaven kicking and screaming. If I'm to be saved, I must want to be saved by way of a deliberate choice brought to me by the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. I do not stumble into the kingdom of God accidentally. I walk through the door of salvation with my eyes wide open, deliberately and intentionally choosing to respond positively to the overtures, the convicting, convincing power of the Holy Spirit in relation to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I walk into it knowing full well what I'm doing. That blessed hour when the when the Lord Jesus extended his mercy to me and the Holy Ghost brought me into his presence and saved me by the wonderful grace of God. No, I don't understand all about salvation, but I knew what I was doing. I knew I wanted to get saved. I wanted to be redeemed. I wanted to know the Lord. There is this voluntary aspect. Now look back at verse number four. And I want you to notice here the significant gesture by this man spoken of in verse 4. I hasten to say it is much more than mere casual contact. Look at the statement again as verse 4 opens. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering. Now, if you're taking notes, let me urge you to underscore the verb shall put Pay particular attention to that little three-letter word, put. It's translated from the Hebrew word, samach. It means to lean one's entire being on an object, to rest on that object. Now, this is not the only time this word samach is used in the Old Testament. In the year 710 B.C., the Assyrian overlord Sennacherib invaded the southern kingdom of Judah with 186,000 Assyrian soldiers. They camped outside the walls of Jerusalem and it was Sennacherib's intent to besiege the city of Jerusalem, breach the walls, enter the city and destroy the people of God. He even went so far as to send a threatening letter to King Hezekiah the godly monarch of that southern kingdom. Now in that letter, Sennacherib had two things in mind. First of all, he would manipulate the fear factor in the minds and the hearts of the people of God. Secondly, he would mock the God of Israel and ridicule any idea that Jehovah would and could 
Deliver the people of Judah out of his, Sennacherib's, pagan hand. Hezekiah took that letter, went up to the temple, spread it out before the Lord and cried out to God and said, Lord, read this letter. Oh, protect Jerusalem and preserve Jerusalem. And it was then that God spoke to the prophet Isaiah and said, you tell Hezekiah, I've heard his prayer, you tell Hezekiah that Sennacherib will not enter the city the walls will not be breached and there will not be as much as one Assyrian arrow shot over the ramparts of Jerusalem. Oh, my soul, what a word from God. Isaiah gave that word to Hezekiah. Hezekiah's faith was renewed and he stood before the people of Judah and this is what he said to them. I pick up the reading in 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and verse 8. Speaking of Sennacherib, with him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to fight our battles. And the people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. That word rested, it's the word samach. It literally means to lean one's entire being upon an object in order to rest upon that object. Now when this man in Leviticus chapter 1 verse 4 brought that offering and he placed his hand on the head of that sacrifice and he leaned all his being upon the head of that sacrifice, that sacrifice actually supported that worshiper. Now, if we move to the New Testament, Acts chapter 16, we find the Philippian jailer asking Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's the most important question that could ever be asked. What must I do to be saved? Those two men of God responded, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I'm saying to you that Leaning on the Lord Jesus Christ pictures and is a vivid Old Testament picture in this instance of that sinner believing on the Lord Jesus Christ to the point that sinner is leaning and resting the weight of his never dying soul, of her never dying soul upon Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and risen again. To lean upon him. Oh, what a joy to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Something else about this word put, it's translated in the perfect tense, grammatically speaking, suggesting that the sinner has found a permanent resting place in that sacrifice. I've read the cults. I've studied some of the world religions. But under God Almighty, I've never found anything to compare to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. His bloody death on my behalf and yours. His literal burial and his literal bodily resurrection from the grave. Nothing like it. Nothing can be compared to it. Only God could have devised such a glorious plan of salvation. Little wonder the old hymn writer wrote, My faith has found a resting place. Not in device nor creed. I trust the ever living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. 
I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Boy, I like that part of the verse. It is enough for me. Oh, I want to tell you that since I placed my trust in the Lord Jesus at the invitation of the Holy Spirit and just rested and leaned upon him with all my soul, it has been enough for me. He is enough for you, sinner friend, in the journey of life. And when you come down to that inevitable moment, when you're passing from time into eternity, you're going to find that the crucified, buried, risen Lord Jesus, if you'll lean on him and believe on him, he's enough to move you out of time into eternity from this lowland of sorrow into the presence of the God that loved you and gave himself for you. Oh, listen to me, friend. It's not the new hotshot song that's on the, on the hit parade. That's not what's important. It's not important all the money in the banks. Now, those things, that, that, you, you have to have it to live. But I'm saying to you the most important thing any one of us can be sure of this morning is not our material possessions. It's the condition of our never dying soul. You are not an animal. I don't care what some sociology professor might have said, what somebody said in some biology class. You, sir, you, ma'am, young lady, young man, you are not an animal. You are a human being made in the image of Almighty God. And unlike animals, you're going to live on and on and on and on. And while the ceaseless eons of eternity are rolling by, you're going to live on and on and on. And there's only one of two places you're going to be. You're either going to be in a literal burning lake of fire or you're going to be in the city of God beholding the beauty of holiness of our God forever and ever. And I'm trying to tell you in no uncertain terms this morning, the only way you're going to get to the God of heaven, the only way you're going to get inside the city of God is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ from a repentant heart. He says, lean your hand upon him. Somebody says, but... But preacher, I've heard you say that. I've heard other preachers say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But I don't know how to believe on Him. I don't know how to be saved. Could I ask you a personal question? Can you lean? Can you lean on the Lord Jesus Christ? Years ago, one of the young men in our church, he helped me one Sunday morning. We were trying to illustrate this. He came up and I called him by name and I said, lean on me, son. And man, he's a pretty big old boy. <laughs> He leaned over on me and he, I mean, with all of his weight, just leaned on me. You know what he was doing? He heard my word and he trusted what I said and leaned on me. That's all God Almighty. Listen to me, sinner. Now, I understand I'm making this too simple in the minds of some, of some theologians. That's all God Almighty has commanded you to do according to 1 John chapter 3. You hear his word that Jesus Christ died in your stead, was buried and rose again from the dead and then you put the hand of faith, trembling though it be, upon him and you lean on him. It's too simple, preachers, too simple. Solomon said the way is so clear, a wayfaring man though a fool need not err therein. I tell you, friend, I'm a, I'm a little bit leery of some of these people that put it up to where, oh my, nobody can understand it. 
I understand this is simple, but we've got to come back. We're living in such a confused world. I submit to you it's leaning on the Lord Jesus Christ. Putting the hand of faith upon him and trusting. But I want you to notice something else here quickly with me. Notice verse number four. And notice how the man leaned upon the head of the burnt offering. Why not the shoulders or the back? Certainly more substantial load-bearing areas of the body of the sacrifice. Why the head? That word head in verse 4, it's translated from the Hebrew word rosh. Nine times in your King James Old Testament, that word is translated sum. S-U-M. Now what am I driving at? I'm saying that the head spoke of the chief part or the sum total of all that sacrifice was and all that sacrifice did. Now listen very carefully to me. Please, if you're unsaved, I plead with you to listen very carefully to what I'm saying. When a poor lost sinner places that trembling hand of faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, that sinner is leaning upon all he is as God and sacrifice and all he's done in redemption and the shedding of his blood to keep you out of hell and get you to heaven. You're leaning on the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, how important it is when you see this. Now, quickly, there are two aspects of placing one's hand on the head of the sacrifice. First of all, placing one hand, one's hand on the head of the sacrifice pictured the individual's identification with the sacrifice. That man, when he laid his hand upon the head of that sacrifice, he was placing all his trust, all his confidence, all his hope in that sacrifice. He was claiming all the merits, virtue, innocence, and purity of that Sacrifice. He was taking that sacrifice as his own. And it reflected a genuine desire to be right with God and to walk in holiness. Now I want you to get the picture. This man brings to the tabernacle, and that very word bring has in it the element of repentance. But he brings that animal to the, to the tabernacle. And there he places his hand upon the head of that sacrifice... And he leans all his being upon that sacrifice. And in doing so, he's saying in essence, this sacrifice is taking my place. The death that this sacrifice is about to die is my death. And when that animal was slain and was in its death agony as the ground was reddened with its sacrificial blood... That offerer stood there with a broken heart and no doubt tear-filled eyes and said, that's the death that I ought to die. When I stood before Calvary by faith based on what I've heard in this word and I watched him die on the cross of Calvary, hallelujah, I said, oh God, that's my death. He's dying the death I should be dying. And I'm claiming by faith, I have nothing, God, to offer you. I have no righteousness of my own. But his death is my death. I take him in his death dying for me. 
He is my personal sacrifice. And when that man put his hand on the head of that sacrifice, he was saying, I seek no other. Hey, friend, you run from coast to coast and border to border, from one religion to the other, to one religious guru or teacher to another. But ladies and gentlemen, you seek no other. Don't seek it. Don't look in it. It's only Jesus Christ and Him alone. I understand and I know now that that, that that effectively keeps me out of who's who in the ministry. Whoever said I'm trying to get in who's who in the ministry. The only place I want my name's in the Lamb Book of Light, Lamb's Book of Light, and it's already there. Not one thing, even the devil can do about that. My name's there. I know it's there. How do I know it? Because he breathed out his life and shed every drop of his redeeming blood on Calvary's cruel tree to pay my sin debt, took my sins into his bloody death. He was buried and on the third day later, third day, three days later, when the demons were running for cover and the devil was having a nervous breakdown, up off that cold slab of death he came and he stepped out on resurrection ground and thundered so it reverberated throughout the ivory palaces of glory and throughout the subterranean caverns of the dam. I'm he that liveth and I was dead. But behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I've got the keys of hell and death. Pope don't have them. He's got the keys. Somebody said, well, you need the keys. Dr. B.R. Lakin said, I got the door. There was an identification with that sacrifice when he laid his hand upon the head of that sacrifice. When I trust the Lord Jesus, I'm identifying with him as my substitute in judgment and my righteousness before God. That's what I'm identifying. He's the one I identify. There's a second aspect. Not only the imputation of one's sins to the sacrifice, but there, or the identification with the sacrifice, there's the imputation of one's sins to the sacrifice. All that individual sin was made over to and placed upon the sacrifice. When that man put his hand upon the head of that sacrifice and leaned on that sacrifice, trusting that sacrifice to support him, in the judicial reckoning of God, it meant that all that man's sin was made over to the sacrifice and placed upon that sacrifice. And that offering, ladies and gentlemen, bore the individual's sin debt and paid the penalty for that man's sin. His sin and its, get it now, his sin and its punishment was transferred in the judicial reckoning of God to that sacrifice. The burnt offering was consequently a vicarious offering, a substitutionary offering, one offered in the place of or on behalf of another. I'm saying to you that that sacrifice became the sinner's substitute in judgment. Evangelist Dwight L. Moody had finished a, a citywide campaign and late that evening, that night, he boarded a train headed to his next speaking engagement. 
As the train pulled slowly away from the station, a young man suddenly ran across the platform alongside Moody's coach crying, Mr. Moody, Mr. Moody, I heard you preach tonight. How can I be saved? As the train began to pick up speed, Moody leaned partly out the window of his coach and said, Get a Bible. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6. By faith go in at the first stall and by faith come out at the last stall. And Moody and the train disappeared into the darkness. That dear man, that young man got a Bible, opened it to Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6 and this is what he read. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Somehow in that mysterious hour when God turned the lights out and no physical eye of any sinner in Adam's fallen race could see it, a transaction took place between the Father and the Son that defies all time and all events in this mortal life. In that hour, God made Jesus Christ's soul an offering for our sin. It was there that mysteriously God took all of our sin, every thought I've ever thought, every word I've ever spoken, every deed I've ever done in sin, omission and deficiency in the same three areas, yours as well, laid them on the Lord Jesus and then smote his only begotten son to keep you out of hell and to get you and me inside the city of God. Oh, how far he came, how far he went, and the agony he experienced when he became our sin. This is what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he, Jehovah God, hath made him, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be sin for us. Speaking of the Lord Jesus who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, Christ hath imputed all his merits to thy account. There's the appropriation, or we might say the application of the sacrifice. Now I'm going to move here, so don't, don't get worried. There's a second move here I want you to look at. Second movement here. Look at the acceptance provided by the sacrifice. Now watch your Bible again. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering. Watch your Bible. And it shall be accepted for him. This is a remarkable promise of unshakable assurance. Now the grammatical construction of the Hebrew wording here is strong and forceful. You'll notice it doesn't say and it can be accepted for him. It doesn't say it might be accepted for him. It says it shall be accepted for him. No doubt about it. No way to miss it. There's no weakness here in the language. No doubt, most assuredly, the sacrifice being spoken of could not fail that sinner. There's coming an hour in... I know we don't like to talk about it. I know some people just absolutely, they just don't want to hear it. But if Jesus Christ does not return in the rapture, there is a place and there's a time appointed for me to take my deathbed. And I'm going to take that deathbed and despite everything they can pump into my body to prolong my life, 
My wife and my boys will gather around my bed. Perhaps she'll raise the sheet to check my feet and she'll find them growing cold as ice. And my body is shutting down. Listen to me. Listen to me, sinner friend. You won't get this at MTV. You're not going to get this at some nightclub. Listen to me, friend. And that body starts shutting down and suddenly my... My wife notices the, the beads of the death dew breaking out on my brow. She hears that death rattle in my throat. And ladies and gentlemen, I am about to leave this world. I want to tell you in that dreaded hour, there is one who will not fail me. There is one who will be there with me when even the doctors got to shake his head and walk out and say, there's nothing else we can do. I've just began to live. I've just began to live. When Jesus Christ came in my heart, I just began to live. Old things have passed away. I have a brighter day. My name's recorded up above. I've just began to live. And I'm going to step out of time into eternity, not hanging on to church membership, baptism, or doing the best I can, but I'm going to step out into eternity caressed in the arms of the one who loved me and yes, gave sir. himself for me, the Amen. Lord Jesus Christ. I can lean on that, friend. I can believe on that from the depths of my heart. Now, when we look at this, you'll notice it shall be accepted for him. That word accepted, it means to satisfy debt to the point of being pleased with or satisfied with the one who owed the debt, to receive with pleasure or even welcome. Now that burnt offering was distinct in the five offerings in the Mosaic economy. There are only five basic fundamental offerings in that, in that Mosaic economy. The burnt offering, the meal offering, the peace offering, the trespass offering, and the sin offering. That burnt offering was unique for many reasons, not the least of which is the fact that the burnt offering was totally consumed in the sacrificial flame on the brazen altar at the eastern end of the tabernacle, the entrance of the tabernacle. Now that burnt offering completely was submerged in the sacrificial flame of that altar. What a gruesome thing that altar was and yet it was the brazen altar, the first item in the tabernacle a person came in contact with when they came through the door. Listen carefully to me, friend. There's no heaven apart from the cross. There's no heaven apart from the brazen altar, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that burnt sacrifice was totally consumed on that altar. Now, I'm not here to argue with you about that being a picture of the believer yielding himself or herself, all they are. I'm not, I, I understand, that's good, that's fine. But remember, we're talking about a sacrifice taking the place of the offerer. And that burnt sacrifice being totally consumed on that brazen altar is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ being totally immersed in the judgment of God, baptized, if you please, in the wrath of God for you and for me. Only the skin of that burnt offering was left. And it was given to the officiating priest. You talk about a picture. You talk about a type. It pictures that sinner trusting the Lord Jesus as Savior and then God in His grace and in His mercy wrapping that sinner up in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've enjoyed for many years the ministry of Dr. Harry Ironside. He was preaching in a Bible conference in a western state and he was staying with a family that were members of the church. 
That family was a sheep raising family. They had a sheep ranch. And one morning the owner took Dr. Ironside out onto the green to let him see the many little lambs that had been born. And Dr. Ironside said there were literally dozens and dozens of them running and jumping and frolicking there in the pasture. He said as he watched, suddenly an old mother sheep went loping across the pasture, followed by one of the strangest looking little creatures he had ever seen in his life. It appeared to have eight legs and its skin was stretched loosely, hanging loosely on its body to the extent that Dr. Ironside thought the little creature must be in terrible pain. But when the creature was caught, brought over for Dr. Ironside to examine, the mystery disappeared. It was a lamb covered by the skin and the fleece of another lamb. That little orphan lamb was an orphan because the mother had died not long after giving birth. The skin and the fleece stretched over that lamb, that orphan lamb, belonged to another lamb that had died by a rattlesnake bite. That lamb was the lamb of the mother, you, that Dr. Ironside saw loping across the pasture. When they first of all tried to pair that orphan with that bereft mother, that mother sniffed of that orphan not sensing the scent of its own lamb, she promptly pushed it away and would not accept it. Then the workers got an idea. They skinned the dead lamb, took the skin and the fleece and stretched it over the orphan and presented it again to the mother. She this time sniffed and she detected the scent. She detected the identity of her own lamb and receive that lamb, that orphan lamb, as her own. Dr. Ironside said it seemed to him to be a beautiful picture of what Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, whereby he has made us accepted in the Beloved. The beloved is the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to listen to me carefully. I won't have perhaps this opportunity again. I stand before God this morning not robed in the tattered, filthy rags of my own righteousness. I stand before God robed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when God sees me in Him, He accepts me as He accepts His only Son. Near to God so very near. Nearer I could not be, for in the person of his son, I am as near as he. Dear to God, dearer I could not be, for in the person of his son, I am as dear as he. And something else here, the perfect tense of the verb here suggests that there was nothing else needed to make this man acceptable to Almighty God. There's the acceptance provided by the sacrifice. Third movement, we're done. Look at it with me quickly. Look at the last part of verse 4. Look at this key infinitive phrase, to make atonement for him. That word atonement's the Hebrew word kafar. It basically means to cover over so as to conceal. But in the etymology and the nuance, the developing nuance of that word, it also includes the theme of reconciliation. The act of settling the enmity between the sinner and God. Restoring harmony and a relationship between the sinner and God. 
I'm saying to you, Jesus Christ in his bloody death on Calvary removed the wrath of God that you and I rightly deserved, taking the wrath of God upon himself into his bloody death. Someone wrote, my numerous sins transferred to him shall never more be found. Lost in his blood's atoning stream where my every transgression is drowned. In the atonement, God acts in grace towards sinners. God, now, now don't, don't miss this. God's justice rightly demands the punishment of sinners, the judgment of sinners. But the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ satisfies God's judgment and makes me acceptable to God. The blood of Christ reconciles us to God. Look at the word atonement. Would you help me very quickly to divide it into syllables? Atonement, A-T, at. O-N-E, one. Mint, M-E-N-T, atonement, at one mint. That's exactly what happens in the atonement, in the reconciliatorial work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are brought and provided, brought into and provided with a perfect standing and a perfect union with God. God can forgive us and save us by His grace and yet be just because His law, His judgment, His justice, I should say, has been totally satisfied. I want you to buckle your belt. I want you to listen to what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said here. It helped me. I hope it will be a help to you quickly. He wrote, God has provided himself with a perfect sacrifice. That which you have to bring to God, God first brings to you. He belongs not to you unless you are a sinner. Now listen. I pray you beware of resting satisfied with understanding and approving the plan of salvation. You must get beyond the acceptance of plans and doctrines to a resting in the divine person and finished work of the blessed Lord Jesus Christ and casting yourself entirely upon him, quote unquote. You're not saved by a plan. You're saved by Jesus Christ crucified, buried, risen again. There are some people who have put, made a savior out of their faith. There are some people who have made a savior out of walking an aisle, parroting a prayer back to a pastor or an evangelist, shaking the preacher's hand. Listen carefully to me. There's not one thing wrong with you walking the aisle as long as you lean on Jesus for your salvation. There's not one thing with you wrong with you shaking the preacher's hand as long as you lean on Jesus for your salvation. There's not one thing wrong with praying a prayer as long as you lean on the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal savior. Let me ask you a personal question. Are you leaning on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, preacher, won't it be enough for me just to be a church member? Church records will burn in that day. Preacher, won't it be enough that I'm doing the best I can? I've been baptized. I'm, I'm doing all my, my, my religious affiliation says I need to do. The only thing that will matter in that day, ladies and gentlemen, is what we've done with Jesus who is called the Christ. Have you leaned on him as your personal Savior? I want to close with something that I read that was given to me not long after I became a Christian. I'm going to give it to you just exactly as it was given to me. Listen as we close. Many years ago in the Scottish Highlands, a dear Scottish woman lay at the point of death. When she was a young girl, she had professed her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as her Savior. But now... 
as an old woman in the hour of her death, somehow she began to doubt that she'd ever truly been saved. The woman's pastor came to her home, greeted her family, and began to talk with the poor woman. He told her how the Lord Jesus Christ had died for her sins, was buried for her, and rose again from the dead to save her, and that with repentant heart she needed only to believe on him to be saved. With tears in her eyes and a broken voice, she said to the preacher, but how do I believe on him? The old Scottish preacher leaned over and said, Ah, woman, can ye lip into him? That word lipping in that old Scottish dialect of the highlands, it virtually meant to lean or recline upon an object and rest. As that dear woman about to step out into eternity thought about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ for her, the Holy Spirit took that old Scottish word for faith and ultimately gave her faith to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as her personal Savior. The tears stopped and with a smile on her face, she looked at the preacher and she said, I, Pastor, I can lip into him. And in just a little while, she went out into eternity, home to heaven, leaning on the Lord Jesus Christ as her personal Savior. He shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. I'm not asking you if you're a church member. I'm not asking you if, even if you're doing the best you can. I'm asking you, sir, ma'am, young lady, young man, are you leaning, have you leaned on the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior?